Christian author and biblical counselor Paul Tripp, uh, in one of his books, he gives this description of himself as a young husband and pastor before God did a major work in his heart. He says, I was a very angry man. The problem was that I didn't know I was an angry man. My wife Luella knew that I was angry. My kids knew that I was angry, but I didn't know. Luella was very faithful in bringing that anger before me with its resultant failures to love my family. She did it often and with much grace, but I wouldn't listen. Again and again, I would wrap myself in robes of righteousness and tell her what a great husband I was. I said I would pray for her problem with discontentment. There was an occasion when Luella was confronting me and I said these deeply humble words. 95% of the women in this church would love to be married to a man like me. Luella very quickly informed me that she was part of the 5%. I was convinced that no one had a more accurate picture of me than I did, and in my blindness, I also failed to see and fear the disaster that I was heading toward. Well, from Paul Paul Tripp's description of himself, we see an example of what pride does to love. Pride smothers love. Love cannot flourish in a heart that is also full of pride. This is because essentially pride is self-love. You love yourself. You love your desires, your will, everything about you, and you simply cannot be bothered to love someone else. Well, sadly, such was the situation in the church in Corinth. It was a church that was full of pride and self-love. Paul describes them in chapter 4, verse 6, as being puffed up. They had this inflated view of who they were, of themselves. In the next verse, he describes them as boasting. Not only do they think they're a big deal, but they love to tell others how big of a deal they are. And lastly, in 5.1, he describes them as arrogant. They're puffed up, boastful, and arrogant. And because of this, they've become a very, very loveless church. This lovelessness is evident throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. For example, we're told that they turned into little cliques and factions. Some are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and the really spiritual ones were saying, I follow Christ. In chapter 6, we learn that some of the church members were actually suing one another, disagreeing so harshly that they went before a civil judge to get Um, compensation. Paul is just in shock. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Chapter 11, verse 21, Paul says that when they sit down to eat and take the Lord's Supper, the meal that is supposed to unite them as the body of Christ in the sacrifice of their Lord, he says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. They couldn't be bothered to wait for one another or to share their material goods with one another. And the list goes on and on 
and on throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I have only known you guys for a very short amount of time, but what I can say is in that short amount of time, I do think you are a congregation marked by love for one another. Not perfectly, right? I don't know any congregation that does that perfectly, but I do think this is a congregation that has been united um, and loves one another in Christ Jesus. But lest you think that what happened in Corinth could never happen here, we should note that in many ways, Corinth started out very, very well. They had a good foundation. Their founding pastor was the Apostle Paul himself. Acts 18.11 tells us that Paul stayed with the church in Corinth for a year and a half, quote, teaching the word of God to them. So they were Orthodox, right? They were Reformed Baptists in Corinth, okay? They had a man who could teach and preach the mysteries of the gospel. You know Paul wasn't going to stand for any nonsense when they were there. They were a solid church. Furthermore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4-7, he says, I think... I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Dr. Renahan wrote, he has a great little book on love. He, He describes it this way. He says, the grace of God had been active throughout the many months that Paul was in Corinth, and certainly afterwards as well. Beyond that, it is also said that they came short in no gift. This indicates that there was no other church that had been blessed with such a varied and extensive distribution of the spiritual gifts. So Corinth started out very well. They were orthodox, right? It was a place where God was doing amazing things. People were getting saved. If you had friends that were moving to Corinth, you would say, I know a great church. You want to go to this church. Don't go to whatever church you're thinking of. Trust me, this is a great place. You will grow in the Lord there, right? Well, what happened? Well, Dr. Renahan concludes, this great abundance of blessings in the church in Corinth became the cause Of their pride. They looked back at all the wonderful things that God had done in their midst. The amazing stories of conversion, the amazing spiritual gifts that had been poured out there, their founding pastor being the apostle himself, right? And it went to their head. They saw what had happened in their church, and instead of giving glory to God, they thought they had something to do with it so also we can fall into just this same kind of sin, brothers and sisters. We can look at our confession of faith. We can look at our reformed liturgy, right? All these things. We can look at what God is doing in our midst and think, this has something to do with me. We're a pretty big deal, right? Not other churches. They're, you know, yes, but they're wishy-washy. We're a solid church. And slowly, pride creeps into our hearts. And then it begins to grow and to spread until eventually love is pushed out and you have a very orthodox but dead and loveless congregation. So how do we avoid this then? If we do not want to become loveless, what do we do? Well, Paul's answer is simple 
and yet very profound. We are to love one another. If you and I can cast aside our love of self and love one another, then we will guard against descending into the loveless pride of the Corinthians. Well, with that in mind, let's turn to our text now, where we will see that we are to love one another because first, without love, you and I are nothing. Second, because Christ has supremely loved us. And thirdly, because love never ends. So point number one, we are to love one another because without love, we are nothing. Well, as already mentioned, um, the Corinthians looked at the extraordinary spiritual gifts that had been poured out amongst them, and they began to see that as a mark of superiority. But I think it's important to note that the gifts that they were pursuing were not bad gifts. They were actually pursuing good things, right? The gift of tongues was a great gift at that time in the church. The gift of prophecy, it was great to pursue that gift. Paul even says in chapter 14, 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you guys. You guys think you speak in tongues? I really speak in tongues. However, it's important to realize that because oftentimes when you and I fall short of love, it's not so much because we're choosing the bad thing over the good thing, but because we're choosing the good thing instead of the better thing, the higher thing, which is love. The Corinthians were pursuing good things, good gifts from God, and yet they did so to the neglect of higher things. Alfred Poirier in his book, The Peacemaking Pastor, writes, Our good desires, even our overtly godly desires, can truly deceive us. The Lord powerfully brought this home to me one night after dinner. I called my wife and children to family worship. I went to get my Bible, and when I returned, I was struck by the look of boredom on their faces and the sense of resistance and disrespect communicated by their body language. Through all this, I ignored them, and I began as a dutiful father to do the right thing, or so I thought. I read the scripture asked the questions, and proceeded to hear only the lamest of responses. I became angry and eventually erupted. I said, what's the matter with you? Don't you love God? This is God's word. What's wrong with you? No sooner were the words out of my mouth than the Holy Spirit convicted me. I confessed my sin, my critical spirit, my own willfulness, and my false accusations. I had desired a good thing, a very good thing, family worship. But a good good makes a bad God. My desire for family worship was mixed with a desire for self-worship, and self-worship won out. Well, let me ask you a question. What godly good desires do you have? Do you have a godly desire to see your children raised in the knowledge of the gospel? Do you have a godly desire to increase your prayer life or your Bible reading? Do you have a godly desire to see the church grow and be blessed and to 
mature in the knowledge of the Lord? Do you have a desire to see people brought to Christ? Those are all good things. But let me ask you another question. Have you been loveless in your pursuit of that goal? Have you become so focused on the good thing that you're willing to push a brother or sister in the Lord aside to achieve it? Do you justify your lack of love because of the goodness of the thing that you pursue? You know, I can't be bothered with the fact that your feelings are hurt, brother or sister so-and-so. I'm trying to do gospel ministry here. This is really important. The church really needs this, and I'm sorry that your feelings are hurt right now, right? That's lovelessness. Well, I think we all do that to one degree or another in the church or in our homes or anywhere we do that. Well, Paul has some pretty strong things to say about people that do that. In verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal might say, you know what, you can be an excellent teacher, preacher, but if you're loveless, you're just a bunch of noise. That's all you are. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You know, to call someone nothing is actually really harsh. Say, you know what, you're nothing. You're nobody. You're never going to amount to anything. That's actually a really harsh thing to say. And yet Paul says that if we don't have love, we are nothing. We're nobodies in the kingdom of God. You can be leading people to Christ. You can be a master theologian. You can be planting churches, this missionary dying on the mission field. And if you have not love, Paul says, I'm sorry, you're nothing. I don't care what you think you are, you're nothing without love. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, your sacrifice, your hard work, the hours of toil and laboring in the Lord, your hours of prayer, Paul says, if you're loveless, you gain nothing. It It's worth nothing to you in the end because you missed out on the bigger thing. Now, by contrast, let's say there's a Christian that has spiritual gifts that are less public, which some might sinfully consider to be less important in the body of Christ. Well, if that Christian with plain gifts has great love, then they are greater in the kingdom of God than the most spiritually gifted person in the world with a hard heart. C.S. Lewis wrote a a very interesting book called The Great Divorce, in which he has a a dream that he's being shown around heaven by the Christian poet George MacDonald. And in one of these scenes in heaven, he describes uh, something that goes like this. He says, some kind of procession, a parade was approaching us. And the light came from the persons who were in it. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. Is it, is it, I whispered to my guide, meaning 
Is that Mary, right? C.S. Lewis was an Anglican, okay? Is that Mary, the mother of God? Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Few men looked upon her without, in a certain fashion, falling in love with her. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And what are all these animals? They are her beasts. Did she keep some sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. Brothers and sisters, the great ones in heaven are those that have great love. While those of little love, no matter what other great accomplishments they have, are accounted as very little in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another because without that, we are nothing, according to Paul. Point number two. We are to love one another because Christ has supremely loved us. Now in verses four through seven, Paul tells us a total of 15 things about love, seven things that love is, and eight things that love is not. And I'm gonna break these 15 things down into five smaller groups. First, love is patient and kind. The idea behind patience is long-suffering. It's being sinned against or hurt and yet um, not responding with revenge. But he says it's also kind. When cursed, love does not return curse and patience, but it also blesses in kindness. When robbed, love does not simply not rob in return, but it freely gives. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 38 through 39, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Love is patient and kind. The second group, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Now these three entail thinking that you deserve something because you're better than other people. On the one hand, to be envious of someone else is to think in your heart that you deserve something that you don't have, that they have, because you're better than them. I deserve the recognition. I deserve the praise, the promotion. Have you not seen my work? It's so much better than theirs. I'm such a better employee than that person is. On the other hand, to boast or to be arrogant is to think that you deserve something that you do have, that others don't have because you're better for them, better than them. Of course I got the promotion. Have you seen my work? It's very good. Have you seen his or her work? I don't want to be mean, but it's not very good, right? Two sides of the same coin, but they're both 
forms of pride. Love, on the other hand, is humble. Recognizing that the only thing that you and I deserve is the wrath of God. And yet we receive grace upon grace. And therefore, we show others grace as well. Third, love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. The word for rude here is translated by one scholar as ill-mannered. That's what rude means, right? It's treating somebody with less respect than they deserve. On the other hand, love often entails treating people with more, dis- more respect than they deserve. Next, the ESV says it does not insist on its own way, but I personally like the NIV here. It says it is not self-seeking. Paul told the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love doesn't just seek its own priorities, its own agenda, its own to-do list, but actually it's willing to sacrifice that to help the priorities of others. It's willing to lay down its own will and its own desires to help others in love. Next, love is not irritable. Pride says, this person is so irritating. I love that brother, I love that sister in the Lord, but they are so irritating. That's what pride says. Love, on the other hand, says, you know what? I'm a pretty irritating person myself at times. I, I can be quite obnoxious if I want to, and there are people who show mercy to me, and so you know what? I'm going to show this person mercy as well. That's what love says. I think oftentimes our irritation with people says more about us than about them. Oftentimes. Lastly, neither is love resentful. Or more literally, love does not count wrongs. Peter once asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now I think we we throw Peter under the bus there, right? Because he often says, the disciples often say very foolish, kind of small-hearted things in the gospel. But have you ever considered how much forgiveness it takes to forgive someone seven times for the same sin against you? That's actually quite a lot of forgiveness. To be hurt by someone, and then they confess it and you forgive them, and then they do it again. Okay, I forgive you. And they do it again, and again, and again, all the way to seven times. You and I would be like, yeah, Peter, I think, I think once you've done that, it's, that's pretty good, you know? But Jesus says no. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. True love doesn't just quit after seven times, but it never starts counting in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I have to be doormats. It doesn't mean that we just have to let people take advantage of us and hurt us constantly, Right? Jesus also said, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
but it means that even if it comes to that, you don't stop loving that person. Even if in church discipline you have to be cut off from that person in fellowship, that does not mean you're cut off in your love for them. The fourth group. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If love, on the one hand, is not jealous of other people's successes, neither does it celebrate their downfall. It doesn't relish in those I told you so moments, right? It doesn't laugh at their pain and misery, but in fact, it goes to them in their pain and misery, and it seeks to comfort them, and it only rejoices in the truth, in the good. Lastly, verse 7, Paul says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul uses the word all with each one of these. This implies that true love has no limit. True love does not bear with someone for 10 years and then say, I'm done. True love does not endure 99% of the time, but true love bears all things. It believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And anything short of that is not true Christian love. Now, if you and I want to take this description, these uh, 15 things about love, and we want to see this applied concretely, right? We have to look no further than our Savior Jesus Christ, the only man who ever loved perfectly. The gospel is really the richness of God's love towards sinful people. Jesus showed true patience and long-suffering by being beaten and nailed to a cross. And he could have avenged himself, but not only did he not do that, but he actively showed his persecutors kindness by praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was not envious or boastful, or arrogant, but he was humble and lowly. The king of the universe taking on the form of a servant to serve his creation. He was not rude or self-seeking. Rather, he sought our good even when we sought to destroy him. He doesn't get irritated with us. He doesn't berate us for our shortcomings, but he's gentle. He's tender. He's a faithful high priest who's compassionate towards sinners. He doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. But as Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He does not rejoice when we fail, but he's compassionate. Jesus Christ truly bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things on the behalf of the elect. Christ, Christ Jesus has shown you and I infinite love, brothers and sisters, in the gospel. And if God has shown us such great love, who crucified his own son, how then can we withhold our love from those who have sinned against us in far far smaller ways. John says in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ has supremely loved us in the gospel, and therefore we ought to love one another as well. Well, point number three. We ought to love one another because love never ends. Having first explained in verses one through three that we're nothing without love, in verses 4 through 7, what love is. Now in verses 8 through 13, Paul goes on to explain why this is. Why are we nothing without love, Paul? Perhaps he anticipates that there are people in Corinth saying, hold on, Paul, you're telling me if I know all mysteries? If I have faith to move mountains, but not love, I'm nothing. Right? Is that what you're trying to say, Paul? Why? Well, Paul's answer is this. All those good spiritual gifts which the Corinthians were elevating were only temporary, while love is eternal. It never ends, and therefore it's more valuable. In verse 8, he explains that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will pass away. Why? Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, it's very common there for people to interpret the perfect as the completed canon of Scripture, right? They'll say that's why we don't speak in tongues today, because the perfect refers to the the completed canon. I don't think that's actually what it's talking about, though I do agree with that in principle, that the gift of tongues and prophecy are not for today. I think what this refers to is actually the state of glory, in the presence of Christ that we will all one day be in. We're not glorified now, but we one day will be. Now, an indication that the perfect is the state of glory is that the kind of perfection that Paul describes here is one that we will not attain until we go to be with Christ. For example, Paul says that when the perfect comes, I shall know fully even as I have fully known, or sorry, even as I have been fully known. Well, when he talks about being fully known, he's talking about the covenant saving knowledge that God, that Christ Jesus has of him, of Paul. However, you and I cannot say in this lifetime that we know fully, even as we are known. Our knowledge of God and of the gospel is often covered in sin right? We struggle with our indwelling sin nature in this lifetime, and yet one day we will know fully as we have been fully known. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll understand everything there is to know about God. We have a limited number of brain cells up here, and God is infinite. But it does mean that we will perfectly know our Savior in a covenant relationship to the degree that he created us to know him. Next, oh, hold on, I'm sorry. Um, I got lost. Paul's point here is that the knowledge that comes from these good gifts, from tongues, 
from prophecies and from words of knowledge, things like that, right? They would one day pass away because of the partial knowledge that they bring. They belong to this partial age, this age of only partially knowing. However, love belongs to the age, not just now, but of the age of fully knowing God. That's why love was still more valuable because love, unlike these other gifts, will never end. I asked you earlier what good things you were pursuing and whether you were pursuing them with love or not. Well, the reason why they must be pursued with love is because many, if not the most, of the good things that you and I pursue in this life will one day pass away. And all that will remain is love. For example, if you're a husband here, it's your job to lead your wife in uh, family devotions, to lead your kids in family devotions, right? Well, when you go to be in glory, your duties and responsibilities with your wife will one day change, right? In, in heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And if your identity is so wrapped up in being um, the head disciple over the family over love, well, you're going to get to heaven and you're going to realize I pushed something over love, and now that thing has passed away. Perhaps you serve somehow in the body, right? You do some kind of service here on Sundays or throughout the week. You, you lead a small group or something to that effect. You play piano, whatever it is. Well, chances are that service will no longer be needed in heaven, right? Uh, as someone who aspires to ministry, I don't think I'll be preaching sermons in heaven. I definitely will not be counseling people. And if that's my whole identity, I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to realize I made a huge mistake. So it is with so many of the good things that we pursue. Pursue those good and honorable things, but know that it will most likely not be needed in glory. But the love that we have for one another that will never end. But that will go on into eternity as you and I not just, only, not just love one another, but we partake of the Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? The Father dwelling in us, the Son dwelling in us, and it's just going to be glorious, the love that we experience, and that will never end. When the New England theologian Jonathan Edwards was on his deathbed. He knew he would be departing this life soon. He wrote to his daughter to give a message to his wife. He said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long existed between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. I think that should be our prayer. That should be the prayer of this body of believers here. That the union, the love that exists here, is of such a nature as is spiritual and genuine in love, and it will continue forever. Long after anything we do here on this earth is long gone. But the love will still be there. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, let us exchange our pride for love. 
lest we become nothing. Let us humble ourselves, confess our lovelessness to those we've hurt, and ask for their forgiveness because Christ has supremely loved us by forgiving us of our sins. And lastly, let us invest in love because love not only bears fruit in this life, but in the life to come as well. Perhaps you realize today that throughout this week you've been very loveless, you've been harsh proud, perhaps. Well, take comfort in the fact that your standing before God is not dependent on how well or how poorly you love people, but it's dependent on the righteousness of Christ, who loved God and people perfectly, perfectly fulfilled the law, and the law is love God and love your neighbor as yourself, and Christ perfectly fulfilled that. When God sees you, he does not look at you and see your failures to love, but he sees the perfect love of Christ Jesus. And armed with that knowledge, begin to love as you ought to love. Now there is something crucial for any sermon on love, and that is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We would be very foolish to think that we can even love for a second in our own strength. And if we try to do that, we will fail miserably. No matter how many times we try to reform ourselves, we'll fail again and again. However, if we walk in the Spirit, attend to the means of grace, and grow in communion with the Spirit through prayer and all means available to us, only then, brothers and sisters, can we actually love one another. Well, I pray that this church would be defined by love. I pray that it would not be a Corinth that years from now is known only for its lovelessness, but rather is known as a church that loves people and loves God. Let's go before the Lord to ask that that would be the case. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are love. You in your essence our love, God. Pure and free and infinite love. And yet in our sin, Lord, we know nothing of love. All we know is self-love and pride, Father God. Oh, Lord, that you would break us of our pride. Lord, that we would see any arrogance that exists in us, Lord. Ideas of superiority for whatever reason, Lord, that we would understand that nobody has anything that they have not received from God, Lord. Whatever, whatever gifts or talents you have given to us, Lord, that's only from you, and it is not a reason to boast, but a reason for thankfulness. Oh God, I pray for this body of believers, as I have seen them, that they love one another truly in Christ. Oh Lord, keep them in that love. Keep them from Uh, pride creeping into their hearts, Lord. And I pray that their love would be known to all, even to the unbelievers that are in the world. They would see the love of Christ in this church and they would be drawn to God because of that. We ask that you do this now, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.